HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com. Okay, it's Thursday, 1 o'clock, and you are tuned in to the Farm Report, bringing it in a little slow today. That's um, because... Why? Why? It's your 100th episode. Woo! <laughs> 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 oh, awesome. So happy, happy, what is it, by centennial, centennial Something to the like Farm that. Report. Yeah, congratulations, Erin, and congratulations, to an old friend, Heather, who is on the line and hosted 73 episodes of this wonderful program. Hey, Heather. Hey, you guys. Hi, Erin. Hey, everybody. Congratulations. You guys have me nervous and crying over here. (laughs) (laughs) Don't cry. The show will go on. (laughs) It's going on. Good job holding it down. Um, And congratulations. It's exciting. <laughs> yeah, the Farm Report was um, actually, what, I guess the, the second show we've ever done on this network. There was the News Hour with Patrick Martins, and then there was the Farm Report with Heather. And that's, you know, just when we opened in 2009. So this is the longest-running program on Heritage Radio Network. And uh, thank you, Heather, for all of your contributions. And thank you, Aaron, thank you guys. for holding it down. <laughs> Awesome. Well, rock on. Uh, hundred episodes strong and another uh, hundred to come. I'm uh, sure. I'm sure. Great to your show. Thanks a lot, awesome. Heather. Thanks for calling in. Of um, course. Take care, you guys. Yeah, you Bye. too. Oh, that's it. Yeah. Great. So here we go. Hundredth show. I am totally stoked to have live in studio one of my favorite people in the entire world, uh, Monica Patel. Monica, um, in addition to being a dear old friend, is a policy specialist for the Ecology Center in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Monica, welcome to the show. Thanks, Erin. Um, so I'm excited. You have such a kind of great work history, and I want to tuck into a little bit of everything, but I think we should probably start out by talking a little bit about what is the Ecology Center, what type of work they do, and then what is your role there as a policy specialist? Yeah, totally. The um, Ecology Center, sorry, 
<clears throat> is is awesome. Um, we started just like many other ecology centers all over the U.S. Um, 41 years ago on the world's first Earth Day, which actually was where um, I was at U of M, University of Michigan, where Aaron and I went to school. Um, since in the last 41 years, we've done all kinds of things, including providing environmental services like recycling and things like that to our community, and then also working on environmental issues more broadly. So we do a lot of policy work in Lansing, which is our state capital, um, and then we also work locally and nationally. So we're kind of all over the place, and we've grown to follow passions over the last 40 years, and we do all kinds of environmental, environmental health, and environmental justice work. And how long have you been working for the Ecology Center? I've been there for four years, which bizarrely is like my longest job ever. <laughs> Congratulations, four years! <laughs> um, so, you know, before the show, we we're talking about um, some of the projects that you've worked on, and just to kind of go over them quickly, you, you've done work um, on coal and clean coal, a project called Beyond Coal, um, a, a program called uh, HealthyStuff.org, where basically you, you looked at um, testing kind of everyday consumer goods from children's toys to cars to see, you know, was there any kind of dangerous... Uh, toxic chemicals. Toxic yeah, chemicals. Yeah, we're looking for lead and mercury and arsenic in everyday products. Um, and that's scary, but we're going to talk about that in a minute. Um, <laughs> and, and then... Um, also, right now, your current project is the, the Ann Arbor 350 project, which basically works with individuals and households on how they can um, mitigate the effects of climate change through kind of change in their everyday life. Mm-hmm. Um, but I want to start the show with some work that you, you had done um, a little bit earlier in your career with regards to water and, and, and water rights. And I, I think I'd like to start out, you know, we talk a lot about um, on the show about, about farming and one of kind of the major inputs to a farm it is water and access to water really determines kind of how people grow, what they can grow. And um, I want to talk a little bit about this idea of watershed because I know for me, it was one of those words I always heard, but I didn't really ever understand what a watershed meant. So I was hoping maybe you could kind of break down some of the, uh, the, the scope of what a watershed is and some of the issues kind of around water and what we should be sort of thinking about. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, to prepare, because I knew you wanted to talk about watersheds, I did a Google search and went over to the um, New York League of Conservation Voters Education Fund. They have an incredible amount of information about you know New York City's watershed, and I found out that it's like almost two thousand miles large, which is insane. Yeah, New York City is crazy. I mean, it's basically we have like giant tunnels built underground from the Catskills that like to water and and it's a really old system too. It's a really old system and it's unique because it uses gravity a lot. So instead of like pumping and using electricity to move the water, it relies on gravity, which is like it, it can rely on hills and and create enough pressure to pump water like up six stories. It's insane. Holy cow. Yeah, and so um that so the lower Hudson like about 2000 miles of land in the lower Hudson um, generates water to to I don't know what's quench <laughs> yeah the thirst of the of like know, nine million, million yeah, yeah nine million people and I'm and that's so half of New York State's water supply comes from there and and basically what a watershed is is a land mass that um, collects precipitation 
and then filters it through that landmass in back into lakes and streams and marshes and and eventually if it's in that landmass for long enough into groundwater aquifers like storage storage units basically for um, water and around here and you know in Michigan where we come from it's um it's pretty plentiful. Our our aquifers don't drain it as, you know, like they get replenished with, mm-hmm. with um, precipitation and things like that. And then there's like the Ogallala Aquifer, which goes across a lot of the United States and, and the Southwest. And that's just like draining and, and not replenishing. And so there's, so we're, I mean, we're really lucky to have a replenishing groundwater aquifers. Um, and the, the cool thing that I also learned about New York's is that, um, the water that comes from the lower Hudson is unfiltered, and so it, it travels by gravity into the city where it's treated, but it's mostly unfiltered, which is crazy because that means that you really want to take care of the land that that's filtering that water so it's um, so it, it, it doesn't get contaminated. Like you don't want major pollutants going in in that land um, in that 200 there are 2,000 miles of land. So so if I'm trying to kind of envision this, um, you know, the the watershed is basically this uh, geographical area. Mm-hmm. Um, how do, I mean, how do you draw a boundary? I mean, how do we know when one watershed starts and, and another stops? I mean, is it that specific or? I, I actually don't think it's that specific. Um, I think, you know, like... I think it has to do with just the general patterns of water, but that changes over time based on geography and elevation and things like that. So it's not as as a concrete a boundary as a state line or anything like that, but it's just the the flow of water into tributaries and lakes. And so it's not it's not as concrete as maybe you'd think. And I, I think that's one of the things that makes managing water resources kind of so interesting, but also challenging is... It, it's a resource that goes across kind of these imposed boundaries of state or, or county or regional. So here in New York City, we're really dependent on our upstate neighbors to, mm-hmm. to take care of our, our water. And and so you had mentioned, you know, not wanting to, to, to keep that water um, source kind of clean mm-hmm. and pure. So what are kind of what are some of the things that you would or wouldn't want to have um like in your watershed or, or what are ways where a watershed can get uh i don't know corrupted or or polluted like what are the things we should be looking out for um yeah i don't you know i don't know as much about upstate new york as i'd like to um but i know that you know paper mills that used to bleach and and bleach paper and create all of this like residue and, and that would they would pump back into water um that was a big issue in michigan up north and um there's like quarries that that strip away a lot of land and then end up using water to pump out the mineral or the resource that they're looking for it ends up saturating the water supply with all the stuff that they're not looking for okay. and so so that's you don't want a lot of sediment and you definitely don't want those things that we know are bad for human health going directly into the water supply. And it's kind of crazy to me to think about uh, essentially the ground as as a f- as a giant filter really. So, mm-hmm. you know, water com- you know precipitation comes down in the form of rain or or snow or uh you know snow like snow uh, snow melt from yeah. from different mountain ranges in the region and essentially m- 
disappears into the ground, which acts as like a, a filtering. So the ground is actually kind of cleaning the water as it goes down into the aquifer. Yeah. So, I mean, one way to look at it, is like soils are amazingly interesting because they you know the, they're like basically masses of minerals and sediment right and so 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 soils kind of take those minerals and sediments out of the water so that it's part of the soil and like the lower the water goes the cleaner it gets okay um it's kind of it's kind of amazing i mean like when i lived in oregon and we would go hiking in the um near Mount Hood, it was like we were walking on our watershed and it was literally like it was it was really well managed compared to eastern forests. And it was just really cool to really see that connection. Um, And, you know, it's funny because it's as much as we're everyone in New York City is dependent on people in the um, in in the upstate to keep the water clean. New York City's. runoff goes into water also so your downstream users are dependent on you to like to keep your streets clean and and to you know prevent sewer overflows i mean it's just so cyclical and fascinating how how everything works together and it's interesting to see how humans have come in and and changed how 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 nature has worked and for good and bad right when i think about that with regards you know, to farming, and, and I know that like that can be a big issue. Um, I think in our region, but also in other parts of the country, where you have um, you know really large farms or really large animal farms, where you have kind of that same thing. You're using a lot of water. I mean, meat takes a lot of water Absolutely. to produce, yeah. and and that goes into both what you know the animal is consuming, but also kind of the cleanup and, and um, everything kind of down the chain. So. Are there other, I mean, I know, like, and maybe you're, uh, maybe I'm putting you on the spot a little bit here, but um, as far as, uh, there are, like, series of rules for farms with regards to, like, kind of how they need to treat water that flows on their property, like streams or or ponds, as far as, like, what animals can and can't go in them, or where they pump, like, for example, like, a dairy farm, where they, like, spread their manure, or any, do you, do you know anything about, like, that impact on? Yeah, I think the land use rules are different in different places, but I think generally, um, farms need to have, I think they're called, like, storage ponds, where runoff has to sit before it drains into the water so it doesn't go like rushing into a, a groundwater supply it has to actually like stay contained in in a holding pond basically and yeah large animal feedlot operations are one of the huge like a huge source of water pollution because you have basically poop lots of poop getting into water <laughs> nobody wants that i think if we don't need any clarification there as, as to why that's bad and i know like <laughs> out out in the western part of the country i mean there are some pretty contentious um disputes around water um i, I know in, in california in particular where you're you're looking at you know LA as like this huge urban center that has a real need for uh, water resources. And then you have the Central Valley, which also is like a huge agriculture area. And so there's kind of, you know, if you talk a little bit about water rights, if we kind of transition there, I mean, how do we decide like whose water is it is, you know, can I just put like a pump in the ground and like start selling bottled water? I mean, how does that work? Yeah. in a lot of places you can. Um, it's, it's a huge problem actually, because you know, there's this, a lot of people think that if you put a price on water, then that will help by creating a market for it. And, and a whole other group of people thinks that, 
water is a human right. It shouldn't have a price on it. Um, and so there's there's an issue because California ended up tapping a lot of a lot of neighboring states' water supplies to just to provide high population areas. Um, in Michigan, we have similar issues in the in the north, where um, a couple of years ago Nestle bought some property and was pumping all kinds of groundwater out of that area and depleting some aquifers and local residents sued them. And, and it's, you know, I think that's going to happen a lot more those kind of, that kind of litigation just because we have a limited water supply and a growing population. And there are definitely towns in arid areas that are running out. And where do they go except to the towns that have uh, like, you know, great lake states basically in the U S that have this amazing resource. But it's it's hard to manage, and right now it seems to be we're we're basically giving it away. That's what a lot of the people in Michigan are really upset about. Is like there are limits on how much you can pump, but they're kind of insane limits. You can pump like so much, so it's an issue. Huh. Well, we're gonna take a quick break, and when we come back, I'd like to move into some of the other projects you've been working on. <laughs> of everybody at heritageradionetwork.com we'd like to send a special thank you to the Hearst Ranch our biggest supporter and longest running sponsor since we first started in 2009 Hearst Ranch is the nation's largest single source supplier of free range all natural grass fed and grass finished beef since 1865 the Hearst family has raised cattle on the rich sustainable native grasslands of the central California coast the result is beef with extraordinary flavor that's as memorable and natural as the surrounding landscape. For more information, visit www.hearstranch.com. As I call you on the tin can phone, we rendezvous a quarter to and make sure we're alone. Think I found a way for you and I to finally fly. When we get there, we're gonna fly so far Making sure to laugh while we experience anti-gravity Okay, a little sad to bring it back after that kick But, break song, Uh, you are listening to The Farm Report on the Heritage Radio Network, and I am live in studio with Monica Patel, a policy specialist for the Ecology Center. So, Monica, the first half of the show, we were talking a little bit through watersheds and water rights, and I want to move on to some of the other work you've done. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about the Healthy Stuff Project and what that involved? Yeah, I'd love to. I'm I'm kind of a jack of all trades at the Ecology Center, so it's nice to talk about our different projects. Um, HealthyStuff.org was founded about six years ago because we got this 
crazy um, x-ray device in that we were able to rent from this company who makes them. And this x-ray device emits this um, sort of like a dental x-ray. And based on when it gets back, it can tell you what elements are in a project or in a product like within in the surface of it. And so going back to like elemental chemistry, it means like you can look for lead and mercury and arsenic and other chemicals. And so we got this product and we thought and we had already been working on cars because we are in near Detroit. And yeah. So that's what we do. Um, and so we decided to go out and start testing cars and seeing what was in stuff. And um, it's this cheesy ass. Sorry, I don't know if I'm allowed to swear. But it's this <laughs> crazy looking device with flames on it. And a lot of departments of community health use it to screen stuff. And so that's what we did. And we looked in cars and we found um, actually a lot of uh flame retardants that didn't need to be there that would break down in in the foams and fabrics of cars and get into the dust and and we came upon this kind of incredible indoor air quality problem where the air we breathe indoors is contaminated by the products that aren't very well regulated in our consumer stream and so we um, we try to test as many products as we can because so many things aren't labeled. Nothing in the marketplace says like I'm a rubber ducky that has lead in it. You know, it's like Not the rubber a big ducky. Selling point. Yeah, the rubber ducky with lead or you know other chemicals are look just like the other rubber duckies. And um, you know these chemicals are added to provide like various. Um, properties. So like for a rubber ducky, you know, elasticity or for the color to stick for a while or things like that. Um, But there are other chemicals that aren't as toxic that you can use um, to the human body. And so it's this amazing connection between our marketplace and green chemistry, which is this newly emerging sector in chemistry that's that's amazing. So, you know, you're freaking me out a little bit because I thought I only, you know, there's there's been uh, in the news over the course of the last year all these reports of kind of contaminated stuff from China, you know, mm-hmm. finding out that like these children's toys or whatever um, have, you know, unsafe levels of a variety of, of, of toxic chemicals. And I guess I just thought somebody was in charge of that. So are you saying that n- nobody's testing this stuff or? No, people are testing it. Um, we have, we actually have a law on the books called the t- Toxic Substances Control Act, but it was made in 1970, and everybody kind of has this sense that since 1970, a lot more chemicals have been introduced than than we can write than than the law has been able to keep up with, basically. And so Europe has stronger laws, and Japan has some stronger laws, and so does Canada. And so our big policy push is to is to be more is to be stricter in the United States, and it's an import and. Um, an internal issue. So like we, we didn't find that only products from China had stuff in them, you know, products from all over the place, high end products, low end products. Can you give an example of like some of the kind of stuff that we might find like in our house that we might not be even thinking about? Yeah. So we've been doing a study on foams. So any of your, anything in your house that has foam in it, your mattress, your um, couches, stuff like that. We've also tested accessories. So purses, like, you know, they're, pleather or their leather and pleather usually has vinyl in it and that's that breaks down and um and that's also not great when it's manufactured for workers and so we've also tested pet stuff um that was really interesting because we found that sometimes tennis balls for pets had more crap in it than tennis balls for humans but pets put the tennis balls in their mouths and it was just so we there's no rhyme or reason to what we find which is why we really think it needs to be regulated way upstream right and we're not 
trying to freak people out because humans have some, you know, elasticity themselves in terms of we can handle small amounts of things. Right. The concern is, is that we're going forward so fast without stopping to think like, what are we actually putting into our indoor like air quality? Mm -hmm. And so we really want to like put the brakes on this market movement and just make the market stop and think about what it, what these products could be doing to our health. And because like one thing that's also been happening in the past couple of years is um, a lot of reproductive issues, you know, and why and cancer is like growing and and why are these things happening? Right. And one one thing we might think is an avenue is our indoor air quality and and, and our products. Yeah, and I, I think there's like definitely like ties to agriculture too. I know I was just doing a little reading on azetrine. It's like a huge uh, herbicide uh, used in corn production that's recently been linked to uh, uh, fertility issues in frogs where essentially male frogs will turn into females mm-hmm. who are fertile yeah. um, after exposure to this chemical. And, and, and so, I mean, there, I think there's just like a, a lot of um, things happening around this that are very interesting. And, and for me in particular, it's like just another example of the importance of the role of, of government and, mm-hmm. and like what is their role in kind of protecting the consumer and how as consumers we should be asking for this protection. So, I want to move into um, your the coal project because that is not an issue we've talked about much on the on the show, but it is something that you know people are super familiar with. Kind of coal and it has really this bad rap, but like really, what are the alternatives as an energy source and this whole idea of clean coal? I mean, is that a real thing or no? Clean coal is a dirty lie. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, so clean coal is kind of way. Uh, like it's it's just it seems millions of dollars or maybe billions i don't i get lost after millions lots of zeros it's very it's lots it's, of zeros lots away of zeros away from being a commercial thing and being able to really help us out in terms of our timeline for clean coal and our timeline for climate change just don't line up very well um and coal has been around for a really long time the issue is kind of like we have so many existing coal plants mm-hmm. and so why i was working on coal in michigan was because they were trying to introduce new coal plants and when you build a new coal plant, that means you're going to have that thing around for 50 or 60 more years. And so that's kind of not the direction we want to go in. And um, coal and petroleum and lots of fossil fuels have been basically subsidized for a really long time. Like we're not actually paying what they cost. And um, and so that's been kind of an issue in terms of getting renewables online because we want, we, you know, renewables, we're expecting people to pay what they cost. OK. And so it's it's kind of unfair to the renewables industry because they're like coal and fossil fuels have this huge advantage. Right. Because they um, they're not. They're not. They're really because we're not paying the real cost. So when you're talking about renewables, can like what are what are some things like what are some specific things you're th- you're thinking about as far as so the two obvious ones are wind and solar. Um, okay. So wind turbines and solar panels, and then there's also geothermal, which is using kind of the the temperature of the earth to regulate the temperature of what's on the surface of the earth. So, um, and then there are, there are other technologies like algae and biomass and all these things that people are looking into um, and researching to develop, but they can't quite do it fast enough to displace fossil fuels. So and we don't have government regulations that are, that are allowing people to do it. That are supporting that. So, I mean, if I think about, you know, we're thinking about kind of these big uh issues and energy and and kind of energy sources are a big one and 
it can feel like a little insurmountable. You know, coal obviously has this huge history, um, both in the U.S. and the world, and has really fueled the Industrial Revolution and allowed for a lot of really rapid progress mm-hmm. um, and has been kind of undergirded um, because it was so important to our nation's economy. And so now for us to kind of stop and say, hey, we're going to, you know, can we just like turn off the coal spigot? I mean, is that oh, like, no way. how does, what does that transition look like in an ideal world? Yeah, I mean that's that's what's hard to say. I think no one no one really thinks we're just gonna like stop all of the coal plants, but there are kind. I think we need to employ a, like a variety of different kinds of tactics. Right now, we've had a lot of coal and we just burn it, you know, and we haven't really looked into energy efficiency. How can we actually use less over time by making our buildings? more like sounder you know like right now i mean if if anyone lived in rental housing ever you know that the windows are crappy or like hot air you're just like blowing coal out your windows well i know in my bedroom yeah the (laughs) heater's on and the window is open because i have like no control and and maybe that's we'll wrap up a little bit with some of the 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 kind of personal uh end user things you know you are working on this new uh ann arbor 350 project that is basically creating resources for households or individuals to kind of look at how they can impact um, of climate change. So what are some of the strategies that you're introducing people to and what are you like what's the response out there what are you finding is like being really well received we're actually working on food a lot and gardening because part of um adapting to climate change is kind of being able to provide resources more locally so they don't have to travel all over the place and so people everywhere know how to get their basic needs met um and gardening has been a really fun one and we're trying to get people to do um, to really think it's a good one for me reminding people what where food actually comes from and what it looks like and how it can be this amazing resource for children and so that's our big one and then um, we're just trying we also work on household energy efficiency and things that make people fall asleep like that but we're trying to make them fun <laughs> and exciting so that's what we do well so ha- household energy efficiency so not a lot of homo i mean not a lot of homeowners in, in, I don't know, my circle of friends, I mean, present company excluded, but what are, I mean, are there, do you have any tips for people who are kind of renting or like young uh, urban professionals who, who want to kind of do what they can from a, from a home standpoint to, to have a greener house? I mean, in addition to just like, you know, recycling and turning the lights off, are there other things that we should be asking our landlords for or thinking about? Yeah, like weatherizing your windows in the wintertime is a big one. Like, you know, that little layer of plastic helps. If you can get so far as insulating your walls, that's great, but it's harder to do. Um, Replacing old appliances with new ones, that's a big one because they're so much more efficient now than they have been in the last 20 years. And you don't run into any, I mean, with the replacement issue as far, I mean, this is kind of always something I struggle with where it's like, do I use something to the very end? Or, you know, is there, I mean, obviously there's something of a trade-off there, but kind of the thinking is that moving to more energy efficient is the way to go. Yeah, and there's recyclers who are breaking those things down responsibly, and so they're, they don't don't have to just go into a landfill you know they, they it can be done right manufacturing stream wise awesome so if we want to learn more about uh you know the ecology center in in michigan and the type of work that that you're doing it i mean is there somewhere we can go to to follow up on the conversations we started today yeah www.ecocenter.org 
Awesome. Well, Monica, thank you so much for coming on the show and coming to New York to visit. Um, I am excited. Uh, next week, we'll have uh, D.B. Emmons and Eva Samalipa of Wild Flavors on the show. Um, partnership between a chef and um, a gardener looking at 46 plants over four seasons and the connection between the garden and the plate so looking forward to that hey, tune in next congratulations week congratulations on go oh yeah and go wrapping up if you have not visited one of the nyc locations um this is your last week to do so so get your butt out there uh we were at big shout out to the folks over at minetta tavern last night who really hooked it up with a delicious goat duo um definitely check that out goat is seasonal and it is wrapping up folks so if you haven't um visit uh www heritagefoodsusa.com to get a list of restaurants where you can get your go on this week. Happy 100th show! Chicken.